Hello and welcome to a Black History Month special of Catching Up With. I'm Richard Newman and in this episode we've been speaking to Dr John Watson, a university historian who specialises in the history of the struggle for black equality in the United States. It was a fascinating discussion with John who talks about the origins of Black History Month and its impact on society. John, thanks for your time. Uh, Can you start by introducing where your research interests lie uh, and particularly in the context of Black History Month? Yeah, so I have two sort of wide areas of interest. The first comes from my postgraduate research, which is looking at African American politics and protest in California, in particular in Los Angeles. Um, and I look at uh, civil rights protest black leadership in in the city uh, throughout the 20th century. So I'm currently working on uh, a visit by Booker T. Washington, the foremost leader of the early 20th century, uh, to the city in about 1903, trying to work out what the locals thought of that, given his politics. Uh, And then I've also given a few conference papers and I'm still interested in Martin Luther King's visit or visits to Los Angeles in the early 1960s before the Watts uprising. Martin Luther King is seen as visiting the city and not understanding it. Um, You know, he he visits after Watts uh, and the local black community tell him he doesn't understand their concerns, that, that their riot is a legitimate political response and he's seen as naive. Uh, as it turns out, he was more involved in the politics of Los Angeles uh, than really has been documented so far. So I'm interested in that. And then on the the other side of my work is looking at the cultural politics of race and racial rep- race racial representation uh, in the blues. And my immediate research interests are about the way that the audience for blues music changes during the 1960s, uh, particularly in uh, the case of Muddy Waters, a blues legend who produced a rock album in the late 1960s and had Rolling Stone magazine tell him it wasn't bluesy enough to, to, to basically summarise. Um, so there was a debate going on within Uh, that particular musical culture about what it was to be authentically black and to represent the blues in an authentic way. And that all those themes are themes connected to some of the questions that Black History Month raises about placing the black experience into history uh, in the case of the United United States in the case of my research interests but trying to foreground race and the politics of race into the American experience so that's 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 how my work fits into those sort of broader themes. Can you trace back where your interest in this comes from? Um, Yeah I can. Um, I grew up in Brighton, I studied locally, I went to university in the 1990s and I can remember sitting in a first year lecture with about 130 other people and listening to a lecture about the, the formation of the United States um, and the way that the constitution dealt with slavery and the United States constitution deals with slavery by saying that slaves are worth three-fifths of a person for the purposes of vote counting and that statement sort of was like a sort of alarm clock wake up call moment where you just sat there and thought how is that possible and it made me think when I was 18 well then the black experience and black history is integral to American history it's wired through it right from the start um, and ever since then all my interest as an undergraduate and as a postgraduate 
been about exploring that black experience within the American experience and trying to show how the one relates to the other. Of course, it's the same thing uh, with the British experience, that the black experience in Britain is, is the British experience. It's not some bolt-on, it's not an add-on, it's uh, an integral part uh, of British history, British culture. And I think that's what's so great about Black History Month. It's a focused space in time to make us reflect on that and remind us of it. It's not the only time we should be doing it, but it is nonetheless a month devoted to celebrating uh, the black experience, the black contributions, Asian contributions, minority ethnic contributions to, uh, in this case, in this case to the, the British experience. Um, but it's also something that we should, of course, continue beyond the month. It's not a, it's not a, it doesn't all stop in November. With the month itself, though, what, what are the, the roots of it? Where can it be traced back to? Um, well, there are, there, are two, there are two Black History Months, uh, two major Black History Months or two events. There's the American event that dates to the 1920s. That was founded by an African-American historian called Carter Woodson. And Carter Woodson had set up an organisation to explore black history and black culture in the 1910s, 1920s, but by the 19, later 1920s, remember a period where the racial politics of the United States were heavily polarized. There's racial violence on an almost weekly basis. The education system is institutionally racist. The justice system is institutionally racist. The history profession is institutionally racist. Uh, so he comes up with the idea of Negro History Week. A week in uh, February, partly time to coincide with Abraham Lincoln's birthday, I think Frederick Douglass's birthday, the famous uh, ex-slave, to, to coincide with their birthdays, but to celebrate uh, the black experience uh, in the United States. And then in about 1969-1970, uh, students at Kent State University in Ohio, I believe, thought that a week wasn't enough, and they turned Black History Week, as it's then called, or Negro History Week, into Black History Month. And that continues and has continued in the United States since about 1970. Uh, in this country, um, the roots of Black History Month date to the 1980s. There's uh, an activist, a Ghanaian activist, called Akiaba uh, Adai Sebo, who worked for Greater London Council. And Adai Sebo was at work in the 1980s. One of his colleagues came in to see him in tears. Her son, who she called Marcus after Marcus Garvey, had come home from work or come home from school and had said to her, why can't I be white? And Adai Sebo had a history of activism in Ghana. He'd had to leave Ghana, he'd had to leave Africa uh, for political reasons, reasons of political dissent. Uh, the late 1970s, early 80s, uh, came here, worked with Ken Livingstone and others in the GLC to do something about that. And he came up with the idea of Black History Month for the UK. He had conversations with African-American activists too. Uh, they initially did it in London and it gradually spread out from London to be something that was adopted uh, across the country and now has the support, for instance, of the Prime Minister. Um, chose October rather than February, partly because it comes at a particular point in the academic year when we're all, we're all fresh 
and we're all full of ideas uh, as, a, as a point of engagement. But he also drew on it because it had a connection to Ghanaian history. It was a connection to a time of the year in the Ghanaian calendar when people tried to settle disputes uh, and, and raise important issues. So he drew on a kind of African tradition uh, and a global black tradition to, to, to make this, uh, this month what it is. Um, uh, he's since withdrawn from it, he's moved back to Ghana, but the month uh, has become, uh, if you like, an institution within, uh, within the British calendar. You work with um, colleges and schools as well. You said Black History Month does have the support and that of the Prime Minister, as you say, but do you think enough is, is there's enough in the curriculum in a compulsory education about black history? Um, no, it's the, it's the short answer. There have been efforts to try and incorporate Black History Month within the national curriculum, which I don't think have, have come to anything. Many years ago, 20 years ago, I trained as a school teacher. Uh, and back then, black history in Britain was a history of the slave trade uh, and the slave experience in America. I think it may also have included Mary Seacole's contribution as a, as a nurse during the Crimean War. I am not aware that it's moved a great deal beyond that. So students, for instance, don't look at significantly in a significant way, in a sustained way across the curriculum at the British Empire. They don't look at the experience of black migrants to this country. They don't look at the centuries of black contributions to British life. They don't have a sense um, as uh, many, many scholars, uh, people like Stuart Hall, uh, have been saying for a very long time that the British experience is a black experience uh, in part and that we shouldn't forget that, that we should incorporate it uh, within our teaching, within our learning. It doesn't happen enough. One of the things that we do that I know takes place across the university but something that we do here is we do outreach work with schools and colleges and I'm currently developing with a local secondary school, a unit of work exploring the history of the Royal Pavilion as a hospital for Indian soldiers as a means of looking at race, empire and power at the start of the 20th century and that's going to be aimed at year eight children. We're doing that here because the Royal Pavilion is, is just over there. It's, a, it's right on our doorstep uh, so we're using a, a a place and using an event of world historical importance that is right here. There are other events and stories we could tell, uh, but, but that's the one that, uh, that we're focusing on at the moment. Yeah, but how, how, can that, how can that change then? How can there be more? What's, what can be done to make sure it is more part of the curriculum? Because clearly it isn't enough. Mm, um, well, partly that change has to come from the top down. There is a little bit more space in the new uh, the new national curriculum for schools to develop their own teaching and learning resources but as we know throughout the education system at the moment there is a lack of funding, there is a lack of time, there is a lack of resources for people to be able to do that so I would suggest that one of the ways that, that universities as part of the education system, we, we have if you like a foot in the education system, this university uh, obviously supports a number of schools but we can offer our intellectual and academic support to to develop curriculum to develop learning resources to offer our support where we can we we, we can't do it all but we can offer a support that also introduces 
and reassures younger people, younger people all the way down in this, this university we have the Seagull program that works with primary school children, uh, that introduces them to the university as well that reassures young people of, of many different backgrounds, but particularly of black and Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds, that this is, this is a university for them uh, as well. Uh, but this has been a long and torturous pro process. The history of race in the United Kingdom demonstrates that every time you take, a, you take an advance, that you deal with one issue, Problems of institutional racism in fre frequently are re-articulated in a different way. Uh, so this is not something that can be easily, easily solved, but we have to keep trying to deal with the issue, keep trying to confront it, keep trying to challenge it. We also, by the way, I think we shouldn't forget that the institution itself, the university, and the university system has its own structural problems with race that we also need to confront and work with in terms of uh, recruitment, in terms of success and retention. Uh, we need to do more work ourselves on that. Uh, yeah. uh, we have to uh, ask about the social picture uh, today too, especially in the US with the political situation as it is. Do you think um, you know, race equality, a you know, huge talking point um, right now, can you trace the origins uh, of that, those current issues and, and where do you see it going? Well, it's a, it's a really big question, isn't it? We've got two, there are, there are lots of issues we could, we could deal with here. We could look at, as I was saying about the re-articulation of racial inequality every time you make an advance if you like, oppression changes, well, we could say that since the 1960s in the United States, we had a civil rights movement, we had freedom struggles that achieved an immense amount. Uh, but certainly since the 1970s, we've seen the re-articulation or the reformation of, of racism in the United States and racist practices in ways that seek to avoid, the, if you like, the claim that they're racist. There's a, what, what some scholars have called a post-racial racism that seeks to celebrate equality, but then also reincorporate structures that have racist consequences. You only have to look at the American prison system to see that. And you really only don't have to spend too long listening to the President of the United States to see how race and questions about power have been re-articulated at the top. But alongside that, if you like, process of re-articulation, there have, as you can chart all the way through American history, all the way through British history too, there have been patterns of resistance. Um, and students here on our race and resistance option in the humanities program examine the way you can trace a route from radical black feminism in the 1970s through to the current Black Lives Matter movement, the way there was a collective of black feminists called the Combahee River Collective, who developed the concept of intersectionality, the way that experiences of race and experiences of oppression intersect along lines of race, class, and gender. It's a really important conceptual framework. They're not, other people have been articulating that as well before and since, but they're some of the first people to frame it in a, in a document. Um, and the Black Lives Matter movement has really taken that concept, that framework on board and adapted it into a, a structure for protest. Um, and that's really important. We're, there is a big question mark at the moment though about how does Black Lives Matter deal with Trump? How do you deal with a president 
who is so virulently opposed to uh, the struggle, who would castigate uh, black activists as terrorists and laud the police, who have a very long history in the United States of, of racist practice, of killing African Americans indiscriminately. Uh, so that's the, that's the current state of play. We have histories of resistance, but we also have a, an ever-changing history of oppression that we have to understand as well. Uh, just rounding off um, our discussion on, on Black History Month, um, how much of an impact do you think it has on race equality? Um, and do you think it does raise the, the awareness of, of, of black history and what can I do going forward? Well, I, I think there's a really useful historical example here. Sometimes when we talk to our students about Black History Month, some students will say, black and white students, will say, this is tokenism. This is, Black History Month should be every month. You know, what, this is just a, an excuse. I think that when you understand the history of it, that makes you question that, that sense that this is, this is a tokenistic event. I don't think it, you, if you understand that history, it works in that sense at all. But the example I like to use in terms of what, what Black History Month can do uh, dates back to the 1950s, to Negro History Week. Um, and it involves uh, a young woman called Claudette Colvin. And Claudette Colvin uh, was, she lived in Montgomery, Alabama. She was about 15. She had attended school and she had been to a session on Negro History Week uh, about politics of protest. She then got on a bus home and she refused to move seats when she was asked to in line with the racist practices of the, of the bus system. It was about five months before Rosa Parks did it. Um, what Claudette Colvin is telling us there is that celebrating your history, celebrating an act of resistance, can spur us all to do something else. There are many more examples of this, of the fact that being just reminded of histories of resistance, histories of protest, histories of presence can make a change to young people and old people alike. Uh, so that's, that's the, I think that's the, my favourite example from my own teaching uh, of the way this, this event can, can help us uh, to, to do something to hopefully try and change society. Okay, just a bit of uh, fun to, to round off the interview was getting to know Dr John Watson outside of that's slightly kind of your speciality area here. So, um, first up, they're not particularly difficult questions. Uh, Favourite place in Sussex? Um, uh, that would be uh, Mount Caburn, which is just near Lewis. It's between Glind and Lewis. If you get the train from Brighton out towards Eastbourne, you'll go past it on the left, just after Lewis Station. And if you get off at Glind Station, you walk through the village, turn left, near where the little post office is, you can walk up the hill, you get the most incredible views of the Sussex Downs from the top. There's even a little bench there. You can watch people paraglide off it or sledge off it when it's been snowing. You walk down into a valley past some sheep and cows. You come up the other side about 40 minutes later over Lewis and you can finish your walk in a pub because Lewis has got lots of them. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, it's not that far from here. And if you're not very athletic, like I'm not, it counts as exercise. Okay, so it sounds like a perfect Sunday. Um, what are you currently reading, watching, or listening to? Um, I'll stick to what I'm reading, I think. Uh, I am reading uh, a four-part 
Japanese history of the 20th century called Showa that's written by, uh, drawn by uh, a Japanese manga artist called Shigeru Mizuki, died a few years ago. It's a history of the reign of Emperor Hirohito told as a comic book. Uh, it's massive, it's four phone directory sized volumes of autobiography and it, it flits between his history of, of being a bit of a slacker, wanting to become an artist but being incredibly lazy uh, being conscripted into the Japanese military, losing an arm in conflict, coming back, trying to become an artist. It's that history. And a political history of Japan in the 20th century, which uh, is something that, for me, stems from a history of, of working in, in Tokyo, working for the university, recruiting students in Japan, supporting exchange students here from Japan. I find it it's a fascinating history. The history of Japan is parallels British history in a, in a sense. We've, we're two islands with long cultures just off a continent that we have problematic relationships with. We are both steeped in tradition. Uh, we both like to think of ourselves as particularly singular. Um, and I'm, I'm just, on a personal level, I'm, I'm really fascinated with that history and I'm also interested in, in, uh, in Japanese comics and comics more, more generally, so that's what I'm yeah. slogging through at the moment. Yeah, you say it's very long, but how, how far have you got through? Um, of the four volumes, I have, I've got up to about 1950, which is the end of volume three. The last volume is like 1953 to 1989, which is when, right. when Hirohito died. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's gonna be big. Right. Um, but I only started it in, in uh, August and I've been piling through it. It's, it's, a, it's brilliant. It's an amazing work of art yeah. uh, and uh, literature. Sounds like a top effort. Okay, so I'm um, going to give you a scenario then where you've got a uh, completely free weekend. Uh, describe your perfect weekend. Right. Well, I have a three-year-old son, uh, Dylan, uh, and if you've ever had a toddler, uh, you'll know that your perfect weekend with, a, with any three-year-old is, is it's about, first of all, having a lion. If you can get a lion past six o'clock in the morning, that's pretty good. So having a lion, I think, would be one part of it. Doing something in the garden, we're planting various plants and bits and pieces, uh, or just doing absolutely nothing in the garden. Fantastic. Uh, possibly going for a walk in the woods. Uh, and then if I can get to a pub, <laughs> be nice too that doesn't that doesn't happen very often uh, these days but yeah something like something like that just relaxing just switching off off your brain yeah so. uh, okay finally then um, you can invite three people to dinner past or present and who are they going to be um Claudette Colvin who I mentioned uh, earlier um, and then two other people that are connected to my teaching and my research. One of them is Claudia Jones. Claudia Jones is, uh, she was born in Trinidad. She was a communist. She and her family migrated to the United States. She was, as part of the Red Scare of the 1950s, she was expelled uh, from the United States for being a communist, but because she was from Trinidad, she was British. A point that has resonances for the, the recent Windrush scandal. She, she was deported to the UK uh, and once in the UK, she helped set up uh, one of the first black British newspapers, the West Indian Gazette. She, in response to the 1958 Notting Hill race riots and racial violence in Nottingham, she set up the precursor to the Notting Hill Carnival. Uh, so this, this 
she died of a heart, a heart condition and tuberculosis in the early 1960s. She's a, she's a fascinating woman in so many different histories. She reminds of, of, the, of the transnational nature of black history uh, and black resistance. Uh, and I'd just be fascinated to, to meet her. To watch Claudia talking to Claudette would be interesting. Uh, Two. And the third person I'd like at the, at the table would be the person I'm, I'm, I'm writing about at the moment, is Muddy Waters, who is uh, born McKinley Morganfield in Mississippi in, in the 1910s, um, learnt blues on a plantation uh, from uh, some of the, of the earlier greats, uh, moved to Chicago, helped develop the blues into electric blues and shepherded hundreds of performers. Uh, certainly, if not hundreds, many performers through his band and really shaped our modern understanding of, of blues music. And it's just a really fascinating individual. So I'd, I'd really like to, to meet him too. He died in the 1980s. Uh, but yeah, the three of them together sit back and, and, and watch the conversation. Many thanks to Dr. John Watson for his time. It was great to sit down with him and get an insight into his work and views. If you haven't already, we have another Black History Month special out this week with the acclaimed Ghanaian artist Serge Atakwe Clotty, who spoke about his Afro-Ghanaianism work and his collaboration with the university. Just search University of Brighton on Spotify and Google Podcasts. We'll be back with another edition of Catching Up With in a Fortnight. Thanks for listening.